KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, most of us think of Jimmy Carter as a failure as president, the Democrat who opened the door to Reagan and the only president whose work after leaving office was better than his work in office. Kai Bird says we need to reconsider this view. Carter, he says, had more accomplishments, was more complicated than people realized. Kai Bird's new book is called The Outlier, The Unfinished Presidency of Jimmy Carter. We'll talk with him about it later in the hour. Also later in the hour, Ella Taylor will talk about L.A.'s rebel nuns of the 60s, Sister Carita and her friends at Immaculate Heart College. They're the subject of a new documentary. It's called Rebel Hearts. But first, our Washington update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him, as usual, at home in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, on Tuesday, Republicans blocked the Senate from even beginning to consider voting rights legislation. Every Republican voted no. Every Democrat voted yes. We've expected this result for months. Uh, Chuck Schumer afterwards said, quote, in the fight for voting rights, this vote was the starting gun, not the finish. We will not let it go. We will not let this stand, close quote. So now what? Well, uh, there are plans B. Uh, what there isn't is any uh, sense that plans B or C or D will be any more successful than plan A. Uh, the first plan B would be to come back with the Manchin version, his version of For the People Act, which takes a number of things out of it, which puts in a couple of things that Republicans historically want, like uh, requirements for voter ID. Of course, Republicans may take that to mean your NRA membership card. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Republican leader Mitch McConnell has already poured cold water after that. I, I think to the extent that the Democrats have a scenario, it's to put stuff like that before the Republicans and other things uh, to show just the cosmic unreasonableness and unwilling to deal with, uh, you know, issues of voter suppression except to support them on uh, Republicans' uh, behalf. But that if they do this enough, maybe, just maybe, just maybe, there'll be a way that Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema and uh, Democratic senators who either oppose or are cool to uh, getting rid of the filibuster or even filibuster reform will uh, move a smidgen and uh, thereby enable uh, more of Joe Biden's agenda and the Democrats' agenda to be enacted. Yeah, a lot of what our friends are saying is that the Tuesday vote changed the subject from voting rights to the filibuster. This has been Chuck Schumer's plan all along. Some people tell us now the July 4th recess is about to begin. Every All the senators are going home to their districts and grassroots groups are taking it upon themselves to mobilize what they hope will be a huge movement to persuade the doubters among the Democratic senators that at least what is called a carve out for voting rights from the filibuster, passing a rule, which the Democrats can do, we've said it here many times, with a majority vote of, of their own, 
to eliminate the filibuster uh, for voting rights legislation. Town halls, letters to the editor, phone calls, activity in the home districts over the July 4th weekend, all around the filibuster, so that when the senators come back, which is something like July 12th, for them, July 4th lasts a lot longer than it does for you and me, there will be movement among the Democrats towards a filibuster carve out. That seems unlikely to me, but doesn't seem impossible. What do you think? I would say uh, if uh, I'm putting it on a continuum that runs from unlikely to impossible, I would have to put it a little closer to impossible than unlikely. It's, it's all well and good to have uh, demonstrations and town halls against the filibuster, but how many of them are gonna take place in West Virginia? Uh, a state which is overwhelmingly pro-Trump, you know, with, with a very high white working class population, very small minority population, virtually no immigrant population, because why would immigrants come to the most historically depressed economy in, uh, when they have 49 other alternatives? Uh, so uh, it, it's hard for me to see this getting much traction in West Virginia. Can the idea, it? though, would be that Joe Manchin himself, now that the name of the game, as you've suggested, for the Democrats seems to be what we can call the Joe Manchin bill. Yes. Uh, the question is, will Joe Manchin do what it takes to get the Joe Manchin bill passed into law? Again, I question whether the kind of grassroots support the Democrats can mount in most states can you know, have any effect in West Virginia perhaps in Arizona, where Kristen Sinema is. And then there are, you know, a number of Democratic senators who have hemmed and hawed on this issue, including California's own Dianne Feinstein. Yeah. Certainly, you know, lots of events can go on in California. It, it's a fine strategy. And given that the Democrats don't have another strategy, uh, I hope it works. Uh, let's talk just for a minute about what's in the Joe Manchin bill, especially this voter ID requirement. For years, we've been saying this is a Republican tactic to keep poor people and students from voting. But this week, all of a sudden, it seems to be okay. Obama said it was, quote, not particularly controversial. Even Senator Raphael Warnock, the guy elected in Georgia, told the Washington Post, quote, I don't know anybody who believes that people shouldn't have to prove that they are who they say they are. And most famously, Stacey Abrams endorsed it. What do you think of requiring voter well, ID? Well, well Stacey Abrams, uh, I, I should point out, endorsed it within hours of yeah. Joe Manchin introducing it. And that kind of gave it a patina of respectability. And uh, I, I, I think what she figured and what the subsequent endorsers like Obama and Senator Warnock uh, have uh, fallen into place on is that this is the best they can get. The bill still, still deals with getting rid of gerrymandering, uh, with preserving uh, early voting, uh, absentee voting without having to uh, produce 22 legal documents. Uh, notarized uh, uh, by one figure who lives uh, in, a, in a very small town no one can reach. Um, so I, I think the calculation initially on Stacey Abrams' part and then on other Democrats' parts was that uh, this is the best we can do. Now, that said, there's still a lot of civil rights organizations that say, no, th this is not good enough, uh, NAACP being among them. So there's a bit of discord in 
for lack of a better term, I guess, liberal ranks. But I think every Democratic senator will support this, I don't doubt, as, you know, it's our hail, it's sort of the Hail Mary pass. And of course, there are different forms of voter ID. Some states, for example, where Republicans are in control, have passed laws that make student IDs unacceptable as a form of ID. Well, that that will reduce the student vote, don't you think? Yes, absolutely. And I think if I'm right, that the Manchin bill also eliminates same-day registration and voting, which has long been a feature leading to the fact that your home state of Minnesota has historically had the highest voter turnout of any state because you can just show up on election day, say, here I am, I'm registering. I wasn't registered before, but I'm registering today. And they say, okay, here's a ballot. So I don't think it, I don't think it will allow that either, uh, creating Lord knows what cosmic disharmony in your home state of Minnesota. <laughs> okay. There's also, of course, there's other things that even the For the People Act doesn't do, which we now think are crucial. The For the People Act was written before the 2020 election and before all of the turmoil that the Trump people have caused in Georgia and Arizona and elsewhere uh, and in the Texas legislature. The For the People Act does nothing about the power that Republican state legislatures are now claiming to overturn elections that Republicans have lost or give Republican judges the power to overturn elections that Republicans have lost. That's a new idea since the For the People Act was drafted before 2020. So there's lots of things that we need. And I guess we have to talk about Kirsten Sinema just for a minute because she wrote a an op-ed in the Washington Post on Monday night that seemed to shut the door forever, that she would ever vote for filibuster carve-out or reform of any kind. She says the reason is that she is taking the long view. We are all very short-sighted. The long view is that if the Republicans gain control of the Senate, they could reverse the voting rights bills that we passed uh, because there wouldn't be a filibuster anymore that we could, uh, the Democratic senators could uh, deploy. But couldn't the Republicans abolish the filibuster anyway if they were in power? Of course they could. Of course, in in order for them to reverse something like the For the People Act, the For the People Act has to be enacted, which won't happen (laughs) without abolishing the filibuster. And if she's concerned, you know, and she speaks of this Republican uh, opposition to voting as if it's in the hypothetical future rather than something that's being enacted every day yes. uh, in Republican-run states. And so uh, not like she's taking a long view, but she's taking an incredibly myopic view uh, wherein uh, she can't uh, you know, see as far as uh, Texas or Georgia uh, you know, from her seat in the Capitol. Uh, she, it's like oblivious. You know, what she fears in the future is happening now. Is and, happening and, now, you know, yes. So that, that, That's a rather constricted version of a long view, which, which means you have no <laughs> short or middle-term view. Yes. So it's not hard to disprove the logic of Kirsten Sinema's op-ed in the Washington Post. Does that mean she will change her mind now that we've shown how wrong she is? Well, not to vilify Kristen Cinema unduly, but uh, showing the illogic of a political position, you know, she is not alone in being indifferent to the illogic of her position. Many elected officials are. Uh, but, you know, there, there's also considerable ground forces, as it were, in Arizona, including the folks who walked precincts to elect Kristen Cinema in 2018, who have an opposite view. And so I think they will try to 
yeah. make themselves heard by her during this, as you announced, rather expansive July 4th break. <laughs> and there, there's another parallel development. While Republican state legislatures are making it harder to vote and making it easier for them to overturn elections they have lost, Washington Post had a fascinating article on Wednesday uh, showing that more than half of the states have made it easier to vote since the 2020 election. Um, they've taken the, the practices that were temporarily put in effect for the pandemic election of 2020 and made them permanent. And most of this is about voting by mail, making it easier to vote by mail, making it earlier that you can vote, uh, more drop boxes, protecting mail ballots from being improperly rejected. Uh, before 2020, only five states automatically sent mail ballots to all voters. For November's election, that figure jumped to nine, and now there's three dozen states that offer no excuse absentee voting. This is the reason there was such a massive Democratic turnout in, in 2020. People could vote by mail. So now this is going to be a permanent feature in more than half the states. And even some Republican states have made it a little easier to vote. Surprisingly, Indiana and Kentucky have expanded the availability of mail drop-off locations and established process for voters to correct errors that would have invalidated their mail ballots. Louisiana eliminated uh, hurdles uh, for for uh, felon to felon vote uh, ex felons voting. So uh, it's kind of surprising that that there are even red states that have made it easier to vote. Washington Post added it up: seventy one new laws making it easier to vote uh, will go into effect in twenty twenty two to the and they will benefit sixty three million eligible voters in 28 states, which is about a quarter of the United States lives in states where it's going to be easier to vote. Let, let's let's remember that before Republicans uh, went to war against making mail balloting easier in 2020, that this was generally thought to be something that advantaged Republicans because, uh, Republican voters are older, and older voters uh, tend to have a higher share of the usage of mail balloting. So, you know, I mean, it, it, it really uh, can be said to, to cut both ways. And it was only under the bizarre Trumpian year uh, that mail balloting became a, uh, a red flag for Republicans and Republican state governments. Uh, but historically, it hasn't been. In fact, Given Republicans' increasing dependence on older white Americans voting, it's actually in their, some, somewhat in their DNA as well. You wonder in a place, especially like Texas, which seems to be on the verge of passing very onerous restrictions on voting, not all of the non-voters in Texas are Democrats. I think right. you've made a very good point here. There's, you know, there's millions of Republicans who who don't vote in Texas and lots of other places. Let's remember, Donald Trump got more votes than any candidate in American history, with the exception of Joe Biden. And a lot of those were people who never voted before. Yeah, well, also, one peculiarity of the Texas law is it really cracks down on counties with more than a million residents, uh, you know, the city versus the country. Uh, blue cities, red uh, rural areas. I mean, that's going to be tested in the courts. Uh, I, I'm not entirely confident 
that that will be viewed as uh, sufficiently treating Americans equally or Texans equally uh, to pass muster. But we'll see. We'll see. And of course, in Texas, you know, the Democrats walked out of the state legislature to uh, keep that bill from final passage. So we shall see what happens. Governor Abbott, the Republican governor of Texas, has called them back to special session. We shall see what happens. One last thing. This takes me to the question of Buffalo. I understand there is news from Buffalo. Yes. uh, And I have criminally forgotten this woman's name, but a 38-year-old nurse who's active in SEIU 1199, the great healthcare union, who was also a member of DSA and had major backing from the Worker Working Families Party and at last minute the Buffalo Teachers Union, uh, ousted the long-term incumbent uh, Democratic mayor in the Democratic primary yes, on Tuesday this week in Buffalo, almost guaranteeing that Buffalo will have a socialist mayor. And as John Nichols points out in The Nation, uh, uh, this is the f- first time a major city in the United States has had a socialist mayor since Frank Zeidler stepped down in Milwaukee in 1960. And there's a really good story about her written before the election online uh, uh, in the New Republic. So I urge people, even though it's a competing publication, I urge people to go check that out. The news from Buffalo, Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about Jimmy Carter. Most of us think of him as a failure as president, the Democrat who opened the door to Reagan, and the only president whose work after leaving office was better than his work in office. Jimmy Carter is the subject of a wonderful new biography by Kai Bird called The Outlier, The Unfinished Presidency of Jimmy Carter. Kai is the Pulitzer Prize-winning co-author of the definitive book on J. Robert Oppenheimer, and he also wrote acclaimed biographies of John J. McCloy and McGeorge and William Bundy. He's written about Vietnam, Hiroshima, the Arab-Israeli conflict, the CIA, and the Alger Hiss case. He's also a contributor to The Nation and a member of The Nation editorial board. We reached him today at home in Washington, D.C. Guy Bird, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, John. It's a pleasure. Will you open your book with the story of Mary Fitzpatrick? It's amazing, and I found it pretty eye-opening about Jimmy Carter. Tell us about Mary Fitzpatrick. Well, Mary Prince Fitzpatrick was a young black woman uh, in Georgia, and she got into a bar fight defending her girlfriend, and a gun was pulled by someone else, and she wrestled with it, and the gun went off, and someone was killed. A young man was killed. She then was uh, on the harsh end of Southern justice (laughs) and was given a public defender who persuaded her to plead guilty, uh, assuring her that she would get off with a uh, suspended sentence or something. And uh, she was convicted of murder and sent to prison for life. 
Governor Carter and his wife, Rosie, Rosalind Carter, you know, in those days, the governor's mansion was uh, stocked with what they called trustees. (laughs) This is like unbelievable, but they were essentially all prisoners who were furloughed just for the day to serve as cooks or gardeners in in the governor's mansion and then would go back tonight at night to spend to sleep in the prison residue of slavery i think yeah (laughs) i think so too (laughs) anyway mary prince fitzpatrick was convicted and uh somehow rosie met her when she visited the women's prison and they struck up a conversation she asked her to be a trustee to be a nanny for young amy and they eventually became convinced that she was completely innocent of this crime of murder. And uh, she worked as a nanny for the whole four years of the governorship. Then when Jimmy Carter unbelievably won the presidency, coming from nowhere, they brought her to the White House and she spent the next four years in, in the third floor of the White House working as Amy's nanny. Uh, convicted murderers. She was literally just furloughed from the prison. (laughs) And to this day, she is working for the Carters in Plains, I think working three or four days a week as their housekeeper. And she is the one of the most devoted of their uh, small circle of friends and and colleagues. And she she takes care of them. One last question about Mary Fitzpatrick. Was Jimmy Carter right that she was not guilty? Well, I think so. But, you know, it's rec- the court records are a mess. And, but Jimmy is convinced that she was innocent. And he, to this day, says that she was just a victim of Southern justice. Well, return with us now to 1976. Watergate is over. Nixon is in disgrace. Jerry Ford is the president nobody voted for. In Georgia, Governor Jimmy Carter is running for the Democratic nomination, along with several other people. Now we see that 1976 was the year Reagan started running for president, but nobody I knew at the time thought Reagan was a threat to the Democrats. Uh, We thought the biggest problem for the Democrats was George Wallace. Reagan was sort of a joke, uh, a failed B-movie actor with politics like Goldwater. And history had proven that Goldwater would be a disaster for the Republican Party. So nobody was asking in 1976 which Democrat can beat Reagan. They were asking, can anybody beat George Wallace in the primaries and win white Southerners back to the Democratic Party because they all remembered that after LBJ signed the Voting Rights Act in 1965, he said that famous line, we've lost the South for a generation. And indeed, George Wallace won five deep South states in 1968. Nixon won all of them in 1972. And now it's 1976. And the key battleground turned out to be Florida, where Jimmy Carter, the liberal governor of Georgia, was facing George Wallace, the racist ex-governor of Alabama. And Jimmy Carter came in first, and George Wallace came in second. And that was a turning point for a lot of us. We had a Southern white man who supported black civil rights. Jimmy Carter went on to carry all of the South for the Democrats in 1976, a truly historic achievement 
Uh, my question for you is, who was Jimmy Carter in 1976, and how did he manage to defeat George Wallace and win the South back to the Democrats? Well, that's an excellent question. That's really the heart of this whole story. You know, it's uh, here is a Southern white man who comes from the deepest part of South Georgia. Uh, his father was a believer in white supremacy. And yet Jimmy Carter is not. He's an outlier. He's somehow raised largely, I think, under the influence of Miss Lillian. Remember Miss Lillian, that wonderful character we saw in Johnny Carson with all her one-liners. Uh, she was uh, an eccentric Southern woman who defended Abraham Lincoln and believed in equality of the races. And, you know, she was a Southerner by culture and uh, she occasionally even used the N-word, but she believed in equality and she allowed young Jimmy to play, uh, all his playmates were African-Americans when he was growing up in Archer just a couple of miles down the road from Plains, Georgia, which was, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so he, he is a Southern man. He is a product, but he is a Southern white liberal man. And he was, he was always, he always had friends who were blacks. He was the first politician in Georgia who could, and he ran on, and when, when he ran for governor, he was the first politician who could actually go into a black church and campaign comfortably and openly and speak their language. And he, he was one of them. And, and he could also, though, go into a small town in South Georgia and speak to white rural Southern voters, men, and appeal to them. He was very clever. You know, Jimmy Carter has this, most people today think of him as a woolly-headed liberal humanitarian. He was ruthless politically. I mean, he had enormous ambition. He was very smart and intelligent, well-read, and he was very ambitious. And, and uh, so he knew exactly what he needed to do, and he was willing to go right up to the line in terms of dog whistles to reassure white Southern voters that he was one of them. But he was also campaigning in the black churches. And his strategy after winning the governorship of Georgia, he, he, it was a one-term office, he couldn't run again. He, so he began running really for president in 1971. <laughs> and uh, he had a young man named Hamilton Jordan, who was a brilliant political strategist, who wrote this memo explaining how he could seize the Democratic nomination. And that was your question about George Wallace gets to the heart of that memo. Uh, Jordan explained that the key was to defeat George Wallace in Florida. And they did it by uh, campaigning as, you know, a moderate, liberal, uh, a populist, <laughs> and they defined it very loosely. Um, and uh, it was a brilliant campaign. And after Florida, you know, you're right, Carter became, he had been the underdog, the, and he, he, he seized the nomination. By this time, of course, Ted Kennedy had not run, and there were uh, <coughs> a bunch of liberals running, but 
Uh, as a Southern white liberal, he became suddenly very attractive, particularly in the wake of Watergate and the Vietnam War and Carter campaigning uh, on integrity, on his integrity. And he appeared to be, you know, sort of non-ideological. He was very clever and slippery and <laughs> devious, but he knew what it was, what he needed to do to win the White House. Jimmy Carter, as president, your book reminds us, did a lot of good things. He granted amnesty to Vietnam draft resistors. He sought to conserve energy. He enforced the Voting Rights Act. He named African-Americans, lots of them, to high positions in his administration. No president before him had appointed more women to significant federal jobs, from cabinet secretaries to judges. Only one woman sat on a federal court when Carter entered the White House. By the time he left, he had appointed 40 more, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So good on civil rights, good on voting, good on clean energy, good on women. Of course, there were all those other things we remember that he was not so good on. The most important this month, this year, seems to be the Mideast, the Camp David Accords, which at the time seemed like a triumph, but today seems to be the source of so many of the intractable disasters that have befallen the Palestinians over in the past few months and in the past few decades. The Camp David Accords, of course, were the peace treaty Carter negotiated between Israel and Egypt, between Begin and Sadat. Let's start at the beginning. What was Jimmy Carter's initial goal in seeking a peace treaty in the Mideast? Well, he, he came to the White House as a blank slate in terms of foreign policy. He really had very little experience. He'd spent one week in Israel tooling around in a station wagon with Jody Powell and Rosie, his wife. Um, <clears throat> but his goal was literally to bring peace to the Holy Land. That's how he thought of it. You know, he's a Southern Baptist, born again, devout Christian, and he... Uh, he just was, uh, uh, he wanted very pragmatically, he thought these two peoples had to share the land. And the way to do it was, uh, he didn't say this at the time, a two-state solution. Um, so from day one, I over the opposition of Zbigniew Brzezinski, his national security advisor, over the advice, counter to the advice of Cy Vance, his secretary of state, and his whole foreign policy team, he announced in in February of 77, right after he entered the White House, that he was going to make Middle East peace a priority. And he met Sadat, he met uh, Rabin, the prime minister at the time, who then was voted out of office. And then he met Menachem Begin, the new prime minister from the Likud party, the right-wing party. And uh, he began to spend a lot of his presidency hours and hours trying to negotiate these to get these two men to agree to uh, some kind of outline of a peace. Eventually, uh, after Sadat's trip to Jerusalem, which interrupted his attempts to bring the parties, reopen the negotiations at Geneva in a uh, forum with the Soviet Union and other great powers. Uh, Sadat's private diplomacy by going off to Jerusalem sort of scuttled that option. Uh, eventually, Carter decided to bring Sadat, invite Sadat 
Anwar Sadat, the Egyptian president, and Menahem Begin to Camp David. And over 13 days, as we know, in complete isolation, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> relying just completely on his own seat of the pants, personal diplomacy, shuttling between the cabins, between Sadat and, and Begin, uh, who after the first couple of days refused to see each other or Carter decided it was best that they not <laughs> talk to each other. Anyway, after 13 days, he pounded out a uh, what's known as the Camp David Accords. Now, the conventional wisdom is that he negotiated essentially a separate peace between Egypt and Israel, uh, persuading Begin to withdraw from the Sinai and uh, normalizing relations with the, with, between Egypt and Israel, and that it was a separate piece because it left out the Palestinians. I argue in my book, and I go up against the conventional wisdom of many historians on this, but I think it, the evidence is quite compelling, that, you know, Carter, part of that whole agreement was Palestinian autonomy over five years negotiate a, a five-year period during which uh, negotiations would begin for and, and assure the Palestinians of autonomy. And then we know now from Carter's personal diary that he kept every day in the White House that he fully believed that this would eventually lead to a Palestinian state of some sort, although he was not arguing at the time for a, a separate Palestinian state. That was a sort of bridge too far politically at the time. Uh, but he understood the implications of what Palestinian autonomy meant. So I argue and I show, quoting diaries and some of the Israeli participants, and that, you know, he got Begin to agree to a five-year freeze on the settlements in the West Bank. And that was the key issue. And that's the key issue that has festered for the last 40 years and has allowed us to get to this point where a two-state solution is becoming increasingly impractical and unlikely because there's so many there you know so many settlers now in the West Bank. Let's emphasize at the time of the accords the settlement movement had just begun. It was kind of a new thing. Labor had accepted the de facto existence of some small settlements on the West Bank, but it wasn't government policy. And you 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 report it was less than twenty thousand people. Yeah, and and you report that within weeks of Camp David, Begin announced that Israel would build twenty new settlements on the West Bank as the government's policy. What did Jimmy Carter think about this? Oh, he regarded it as a betrayal. And, you know, he turned to his aides and he says, Begin lied to me. Now, you know, that's an extremely controversial statement. Uh, but I believe that Begin did agree late on Saturday night, early Sunday morning, to a five-year freeze of all settlement activity in the West Bank. And Carter had it, the language, in a separate signed letter. But Begin never signed it. He promised he was going to. He substituted a letter for a different letter with different language. It was subterfuge. He deceived the president of the United States. And uh, Carter regarded this 
and he regards it today as a betrayal. And this is why he began speaking out as soon as Begin began reneging on the Palestinian component of Camp, the Camp David Accords. President Carter, then still in office, began pressuring the, the Israelis and Begin to stop the settlements. Uh, he understood that this meant they were foreclosing the avenue to a real peace. And they, they were jeopardizing the very nature of the, quote, Jewish state. And then after he left the presidency, Carter emerged as a champion of Palestinian statehood. In 1985, he published the book, The Blood of Abraham. There he admitted that Camp David, quote, gave the Israelis renewed freedom to pursue their goals of fortifying and settling the occupied territories because of the way it removed Egypt from the equation that Israel had to take into account. The, the, the United States was, is, has ever since been giving Egypt more than a billion dollars a year in military and economic aid, a total of $50 billion of military aid, $30 billion in economic aid. And in exchange, Egypt enforces the blockade of Gaza and Egypt doesn't pressure uh, Israel on, on the West Bank. And then in 2006, Jimmy Carter wrote the book, Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid. This is a term that just in the last few months remains a flashpoint for Zionists today. What did Carter mean when he titled his 2006 book, Peace, Not Apartheid? <laughs> right. Well, he knew exactly what he was doing when he used that word. It was... Uh, he knew it was going to be inflammatory. He knew it was going to attract a lot of criticism. Uh, now, the title is Peace Not Apartheid. <laughs> it was very clever. But, of course, everybody was just outraged that the book's title had the word apartheid in it. Although the book itself doesn't, talk, doesn't accuse Israel of being an apartheid state. It's just warning the Israelis that if they continue down this road, they're jeopardizing the majority status of the Jewish population in the state. And, and he also argued that, well, he wouldn't describe Israel's treatment of uh, Arab citizens of Israel as equivalent to apartheid. In the West Bank and in Gaza, the term apartheid did become more and more accurate in describing Israeli policy towards Palestinians. So he, you know, he was very careful in his language uh, but he was very pro provocative with the title. And uh, many of his closest aides, uh, even Stu Eisenstadt, who had served as his domestic policy counselor in the White House years, tried to persuade him to change the title. Jimmy refused. And as a result, uh, a number of trustees at the Carter Center resigned. Uh, his closest Middle East advisor resigned in a public manner, uh, you know, and Carter took some, you know, political hits for this, but it was, he didn't care. He thought it was the right thing to do. Now, you know, part of the backstory of this is, uh, I think this is important, is that, you know, coming back to Camp David and when he was president, after he succeeded uh, and taking Egypt off the battlefield for, you know, the next 40 years uh, for Israel. Nevertheless, in 1979 and 80, as he was beginning to campaign for re-election, he was still in deep trouble with the Jewish American leadership. 
Rabbi Alexander Schindler, the leading spokesman for the Jewish community in those years, was a liberal Democrat who constantly was voicing his criticism of, of Carter um, as being anti-Israeli because he was pushing Begin on the settlements. And the result was that, you know, in 1976, Carter had won 72% of the Jewish American vote. In 1980, it was only 45%. He was the only Democratic candidate or sitting president not to win a majority of the Jewish vote. Just extraordinary. The Jewish American community abandoned him because of Camp David. And he lost their vote, but he also lost the evangelical vote, partly because of his position on Israel, partly because of his position on separation of church and state. It, it was, you know, it's a terrible political cost that he paid for trying to do the right thing to bring peace to the Middle East. Well, we're out of time, but I have to ask you one more question. The title of your book is The Outlier. What exactly does that mean? Well, I think, you know, I was attracted to Carter to writing about him um, because he's so complicated, because he is a liberal Southerner who has a, a very progressive position on race, but he was a small town fiscal conservative on the budget and, and uh, those kinds of issues. He, he, was, he never really understood trade unions, the labor union movement. Um, he was a liberal on regulatory issues, but he deregulated the airline industry, thus allowing Americans, middle-class Americans to fly for the first time, but weakening the, the airline trade unions. Uh, you know, he's very complicated politically. And so I think he's an outlier in the South as a man who ran for the, won the white Southern vote in 1976, and then they turned on him and they turned on him for race. And likewise, he was an outlier one, when he came to Washington and, and uh, occupied the Oval Office, but refused repeatedly dinner invitations from Catherine Graham, the publisher of the Washington Post. He just hated going to the Georgetown set cocktail parties. He was an outlier in terms of the Washington establishment. Uh, and if people think that he is, if people admire Jimmy Carter for his ex-presidency, uh, which they should admire his presidency as well, because it's a seamless thing. It's the same guy. He's the most decent man, I argue, to have occupied the Oval Office in the 20th century. Kai Bird's new book is The Outlier, The Unfinished Presidency of Jimmy Carter. Kai, thank you for this fascinating book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time for TV Talk with Ella Taylor. Of course, she's a longtime critic and writer for the LA Weekly, NPR.org, the LA Times op-ed page, lots of other places. We reached her today 
once again at home in Santa Monica. Hi, Ella. Hi, John. Well, maybe our listeners have heard that I wrote a book on L.A. in the 60s with Mike Davis. It came out last year. In fact, it was a fun drive premium here on KPFK. And one of my favorite stories about L.A. in the 60s, one of my favorite chapters of that book is about Sister Corita, an artist and anti-war activist who taught at Immaculate Heart College here in L.A., now there's a documentary about Sister Carita and the other activist nuns at Immaculate Heart. It's called Rebel Hearts. It opens in L.A. on Friday at the Lemley Glendale and will be streaming on Discovery Plus two days later. That's June 27th. I have not seen it yet. You have. Tell us about the documentary Rebel Hearts. Well, the documentary is as delightful and jaunty and high-spirited as its subjects are, including Sister Corita, who in fact was the only one that I know of who not only um, left the order of Sisters of the Immaculate Heart, but eventually left the church altogether. And she was just one of the talents um, that um, graced the community, the Sisters of Immaculate Heart here in L.A., um, they had a really, truly lively uh, and innovative community. They taught in, a, in the College of the Sisters of the Immaculate Heart, and um, they recorded Schubert for Capitol Records and uh, put on plays and had discussions and, and so on. And uh, were very much influenced not only by the counterculture, but also by the civil rights movement. They marched at Selma. Um, I think I caught sight of, of a couple of them at the Women's March in 2018, um, where uh, several of them who are now obviously elderly, but uh, no less spirited for all of that, were marching uh, with the rest of us. The film is made by um, Pedro Cos, who is a Brazilian director who grew up gay within the Catholic Church um, and uh, really related to this story. Perhaps you read it in your book. Um, <laughs> there were several issues, a whole list of issues that they had with the Catholic patriarchy. Uh, by the way, they were also influenced, of course, by the Vatican, the fairly short-lived Vatican reforms of the period. And uh, they were at war, really, with um, Cardinal McIntyre, who spared nothing to try and crush their spirits uh, and their presence, actually. Um, and the issues that they were fighting about um, were, first of all, their habits, and by that I mean I'm talking about wardrobe, <laughs> uh, which were medieval and, and, according to them, really got in the way of the work that they were doing with the homeless and um, with uh, poor residents of, of L.A. Um, he was not having this at all, and so there was a pitch battle over that, which they eventually won. They didn't win all the battles. More seriously, uh, although I would regard it as pretty serious if I had to wear that lot of clothes about in my daily life, was that they were serving as completely free labor by teaching in the Catholic schools and the seminaries and the colleges with no pay and no pensions, nothing for when they you know, eventually got old and, and retired. 
so they were militating to have all that turned around and they were successful in some of it and not successful in others. And eventually um, they closed the religious community. In 1981, the, the College of the Immaculate Heart was closed, but they continued as a community, really a secular lay community, uh, in which they could continue with all their intellectual activities as well as their work with the uh, downtrodden of, of uh, Los Angeles. The way the movie approaches them is partly with a series of interviews conducted over a period of at least 10 years by a woman named Shawnee Isaac Smith, um, which the director got hold of and the, the, the film turned into a collaboration between the two of them. So that a whole bunch of the, the nuns who are still alive, one of them at least has a PhD, um, are interviewed about that period um, and they also unearthed a great deal of really wonderful archival footage and supplemented the gaps in that, as so many documentaries seem to do these days, with um, some rather lovely, playful animation. So it's just a, a really good um, watch, this film. It's just, you come out of it feeling very high-spirited, even though they didn't win all their battles. And in fact, in the 1980s, the number of nuns in general declined very steeply. Um, some of them really continued as secular nuns. That is to say that they continued celibate and uh, doing their important work, but not under the control of the church. Very few of them left the church uh, formally, but uh, she was one of them, the uh, artist Carita. Sister Carita herself was best known as an anti-war artist. She was on the cover of Newsweek at one point, probably the best known artist in America at, at the time. I mean, very few other artists got on the cover of Newsweek. And Cardinal McIntyre eventually ordered her either to give up her political art or renounce her vows. And she chose to renounce her vows and leave the order. And uh, her story is after that is not a happy, lively, and warm story. Um, she became increasingly isolated. Her art uh, sort of dissipated, went downhill. Although she became more and more famous, she designed what became the love postage stamp the most popular stamp in American history up to that point. But when the post office unveiled the love stamp, they did it not as a Christian statement of radical love, but on the set of the love boat. And Carita Kent refused to attend in protest and um, died a sad and lonely and defeated uh, woman. I guess this story is not told in the documentary. It is not. Um, and... Uh it, that makes me incredibly sad because she appears as a very lively figure. But I guess it makes sense that somebody who has lived most of their life within a supportive community would not do especially well uh, by themselves. In any event, very highly recommended, I think, uh, one, one way or another by both of us. <laughs> well, now it's time for something completely different, something that's not about nuns being expelled from the church. Mary J. Blige, the um, R&B hip-hop singer who became known as the Queen of Hip-Hop Soul, celebrates the 25th anniversary of her, probably her most successful album, My Life. 
and from the, 19, uh, the early 1990s. And a documentary has been directed by Vanessa Roth about that. It's, it's about the album. And the strongest part of the album, frankly, is when she sings live from the album for the very first time. Other than that, I've got to say that this, for me, this was a, a disappointing documentary. Of course, rock documentaries um, uh, are a dime a dozen these days. And I, I'm sorry to say that this one is, is rather carelessly made. It's it's certainly great that, that they focused on this album. The album um, deals with what she herself, who's extensively uh, interviewed during the movie, she's a very striking figure with huge gold earrings and, and long blonde hair and still very beautiful. Um, that album spoke to the dark side of her life. And since it's brought up as the central subject of her life, I would have wanted to hear more, more specifically about that dark side, but instead um, it's couched extremely vaguely. I mean, she was from New York, from the projects. She grew up with, for a while at least, a single parent who also sang. Um, music was in her life from the beginning, but she didn't have the church support that many singers, uh, similar singers have had. And they were poor. Uh, there was abuse. Uh, we don't know what kind because absolutely every mention of the dark side of her life is couched in, in this vague emotionality. Now, she is under no obligation to share her personal life. But when it forms the central subject of the movie and then she doesn't tell us anything about it, there's actually a clip of an interview with a, a journalist who tries to ask her about her life and she rather curtly turns her away and says, it's none of your business. Well, um, that is true in a way, but, you know, this was much more about her life than it was about the mu music. There are, there's a lot of sort of psychobabble talk about learning to love yourself and being insecure, um, but no real content to it. The movie comes alive when she sings the album live. I mean, she has a tremendous voice. Mary J. Blige's My Life. The documentary is now on Amazon Prime Video. We have time for one more briefly, something that's not about a hip-hop R&B singer. Last week, I, I binge-watched Christ Stopped at Eboli, which is an Italian movie by the distinguished director Francisco Rosi with a, that was adapted from a memoir by the writer and painter Carlo Levi. The film was made in 1979. It, it tells the story of when Levy, who was an anti-fascist activist and vociferously opposed Mussolini's invasion of what today we call Ethiopia, at the time it was called Abyssinia, um, and for his pains, he was exiled to a remote uh, village in Italy with a lot of very bad weather. But at the beginning, um, even though 
he is very moved by both the poverty and the resilience of the local peasants. And we see their faces, it's beautifully shot. Um, they have no medical attention because the local doctors refuse to treat them. These are people who have really been cast adrift. They, they, there's, there's absolutely nothing for them. Levy, who is played by the great Italian actor, Gian Maria Lante, they try to corral him to treat them medically. He has never practiced and he keeps saying, no, 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 I've never practiced. I don't know how to do this until his very practical doctor sister arrives on the scene. She's played marvelously by uh, the actress Leah Massari. And she says, you know, don't, basically don't be an idiot. Uh, you know how to do this, go ahead and treat them. And gradually he becomes a part of this uh, community, but not in a romanticized way at all. There is a great deal of silence in, in the movie as he observes these lives. Some of it is very funny, um, but it is, uh, it's 220 minutes long and it plays on Criterion, but you should not be daunted by that length because it's broken up into, I think, four either three or four episodes. I can't recommend it enough. I mean, it doesn't sound like the sort of movie you would binge watch, but I did. <laughs> That's Christ Stopped at Eboli on Criterion, based on the Carlo Levy novel. Ella Taylor is our TV and movie critic. Ella, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you for indulging me, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.